If you're new to Emmanuel, uh, one of the things we're doing this year that's a little bit different is we're reading through the New Testament together, five chapters a week. Uh, that takes us all the way from the beginning of Matthew to the end of Revel uh, Revelation in a calendar year. And each Sunday, the passage that we look at is one of the passages that you have read in the previous week. So this last week as a church, we read 2 Corinthians 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Our passage this morning is chapter 4, 1 to 6. I want to say a few things on the front end of the sermon that will help us make sense of what Paul is saying in this passage and why it matters today. So let me start with this. Paul wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth, and Paul made at least three visits to the church in Corinth. I'll be honest with you, my inner Bible nerd came out this week as I was preparing this sermon, and I had a lovely timeline with all of these letters and visits and things that we know and things that we think we know and things we're not quite sure about, and I wanted to dig into that with you, but when I got to the end of the sermon, it was a bit too long, and so I've chopped that off, and all I want to say to you is that a good study Bible will help you make sense of the correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. I want you to be assured you're not missing any books in your Bible. We're not scrambling to find any other letters to the church in Corinth. You have exactly in your Bible what God wants you to have in your Bible. The point I want you to understand is that by the time you get to 2 Corinthians 4, there's a lot of history between Paul and the church in Corinth. Lots of letters back and forth, lots of visits, lots of coming and going. There's been good times and there's been bad times. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, so to speak, and some of that water has been turbulent. It's been troubled. So that brings me to the second thing that you need to know. One of the big themes in the book of 2 Corinthians, you've read the first half this week, you'll read the next half this upcoming week. One of the major themes in this book is Paul defending his apostolic ministry against a group of people who called themselves, I know this is a little bit cheesy, but this is what they called themselves, super apostles. Super apostles. So the idea is this, Paul started the church in Corinth. He was there for about 18 months after he planted this church. He left, he wrote letters, he came back, he visited. There was correspondence back and forth and communication back and forth. But at some point, this group of people known as super apostles showed up in Corinth. What were they doing in Corinth? Well, they were making fun of Paul. They were literally mocking Paul for his physical limitations and his limitations as a preacher, as a communicator. They were contradicting his message. They were lying about him. They were slandering about him. They were preaching what Paul calls in chapter 11 of this book a different gospel. And they were demanding exorbitant amounts of money from the church in Corinth for their religious services. So by the time you get to this point, 
You think about Paul and this church. Their relationship has been established. Paul was their spiritual father in a very real sense. Then their relationship became strained. There was conflict. There was confusion. Uh, There was back and forth things that were not always pleasant. In fact, there were painful letters and painful visits that Paul talks about. At some point, there was a complete breach in the relationship. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians 4, the relationship has been mended But things are still tense. You understand the concept of forgiving someone, but you can't really ever forget the past. And that's where Paul was with this church. They had reconciled, but they knew their past, and it was a troubled past. And in this letter, Paul's defending himself to some degree against the accusations and the lies of the super apostles. That brings us to the big idea of this passage. Very simple. And really, really, really important. God and God alone gets to define the nature of gospel ministry. God and God alone gets to define the nature of gospel ministry. Paul was not at liberty to go around the Roman Empire doing whatever he wanted to do. Apollos and Peter who were known by this church. Apollos and Peter were not allowed. They did not have license from God to go around the Roman Empire doing whatever it is that they wanted to do. The super apostles wrongly claimed the authority to do whatever they wanted to do within a local church setting as long as you sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus on the side. That's the prerogative they were claiming, but it was not theirs to claim. The church in Corinth just like the church at Emmanuel in Odessa, does not have the right to say we will define what gospel ministry looks like without listening to what the Word of God says. That's not our prerogative. It's not their prerogative. God and God alone has the right to define the nature of gospel ministry. Now, when I say that to you, I imagined this last week as I thought about this passage and that big idea. I thought... Some of these people are going to hear that, and in the back of their mind, there's going to be a voice that says, well, this sounds like a really important passage for pastors. I'm not one of those, so I can take a nap the rest of the Sunday morning service. Or there will be people who in the back of their mind say, I really hope my Sunday school teacher is listening this morning. There will be people who in the back of their minds say, I think we need to have a homework check with the deacons at the end of Sunday morning service and make sure they filled in all the blanks on the outline. I hope our missionaries know this stuff. Church leaders need to understand this, and too many church leaders do not understand this. However, if you listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, Paul says that the work of the ministry has been given to saints. That's a New Testament word that means Christians. The work of the ministry is not something that falls solely on my shoulders or our elders or our deacons or your Sunday school teacher or our missionaries. Biblically speaking, the work of the ministry is given to the saints to the church. If you claim the name Jesus Christ 
as your Lord and Savior, the work of ministry has been given to you. And the job of church leaders, Ephesians 4, is to equip you and prepare you for the work of ministry. It is not something that only belongs to church leaders. It's something that belongs to all people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, which means when we look at a passage that teaches us and reminds us that God gets to shape gospel ministry, this passage is for you and me and our families and our church family. God and God alone shapes and defines gospel ministry. Let me say on the outset a couple of disclaimers. Number one, we are not going to say everything that could possibly be said about gospel ministry this morning. There are many other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament that could shape the way that we think about gospel ministry. So this is not an exhaustive conversation, but hopefully it's representative of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. That's the passage we're dealing with. The second thing I want to sort of disclaim or warn you about is that as we think about what this passage says and we try to apply it to our lives and our church, I think by necessity we have to look at what is going on around us in the world and we have to say, this is what Paul's talking about and that's not what Paul's talking about. In other words, we have to say there are some people who claim to do gospel ministry who are doing it in a way that violates 2 Corinthians 4. And to understand this passage and to apply it in our context, we have to be willing to say, no, no, not like that, like this. Sometimes the world makes you feel guilty about doing that as a Christian. Sometimes the world says, oh, Christians, everyone knows what they're against, no one knows what they're for. Look, you should be for some things, and the world should not have to search to find and to know what we're for. But when you live in a culture that is increasingly secular, and when you move around in a Christian subculture that doesn't really listen to the Word of God all that much, there are times when you have to say, no, not that, this. Not this, that. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. And I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone or say we're better than anybody else. But to understand this passage and to think about how it applies to us in our context, we're going to have to do a little bit of not this, but that. So what I want you to think about is pastors in churches who make the news. That's a scary thing to think about, isn't it? Usually they don't make the news for the best of things. That happens occasionally. Every now and then the OA runs a nice story on nourishing the nations or something that's happening here at, at Emmanuel. Every, time, uh, every now and then a, a national news media will say something positive. But most of the time, when pastors and churches make the news, it's not flattering. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Christianity Today... Uh, well-established magazine in the United States, recently produced and released a podcast titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle where Mark Driscoll was the pastor, and it's the story of, are you ready for this? The rise of the church and the fall of the church. 
At one point, one of the largest churches in the United States, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, but there was a rot in the foundation of the church. And when that rot was exposed, this massive, massive church functionally ceased to exist within about two weeks. It just crumbled like a house built on the sand. And this podcast just details the things that happened. I don't agree with all the perspectives in the podcast, but it's been an interesting thing to listen to. It's been a a heartbreaking thing to listen to. The Discovery Network recently released a documentary called Hillsong, Hillsong A Mega Church Exposed. Hillsong is one of the largest churches, some would call it a denomination, in Australia. It's spread beyond Australia, all around the world. And this documentary just looks at some of the things that have happened amongst leadership, uh, scandals, accusations, talks about the the. Hillsong Pastor Carl Lentz, who lived in New York City, and the, the salacious things that came out about his life over the last couple years, and all sorts of just horrific stories that come out about the life of this particular church. Some of you, this last week, you were on Fox News or CNN or whatever, or social media, and you saw a story from Brooklyn. There was a pastor one week ago, made the news. He was preaching at his church in Brooklyn. The church was live streaming the service. Armed robbers walked into the church with the live stream running and with guns in hand robbed the pastor while he was preaching in the pulpit and they left the building with over $1 million in jewelry. Don't get any ideas. You're not going to get away with much if you try it here. We have ushers, and I don't have $1 million worth of jewelry on. I promise you that. A million dollars worth of jewelry. We could talk about other churches, pastors that make the news. We could talk about the many ministries that exist in the United States of America. I'm not trying to just trash any parachurch organization, any uh, Christian organization outside of the church. What I'm saying to you is that there are many high-profile religious leaders in the United States that rather than organizing a church, they organize a ministry. And the reason they do this is that when there's a church, you have other pastors, you have other leaders, you have accountability, you have members... You have policies and procedures to follow, but if you organize as a ministry, people have figured out you can do whatever you want to do, and there's no accountability, and this goes off the rails all the time. We could talk about one of the pastors or the pastor of one of the largest churches in the United States of America who repeatedly over the last couple of years, this is a high profile, people consider him to be an evangelical, solid, trusted, reliable pastor who over and over and over again has told his people and said to the whole world, we can be done with the Old Testament. It's embarrassing, I don't like the stories, I don't want anything to do with it, Cut it out, and his word literally is, it's time to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. You say, well, he must really like the New Testament. Not so much. He says the New Testament is not the authoritative source for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. 
We could go on and on and on with pastors, churches, ministries, scandals, accusations, podcasts, documentaries. Here's the question that we're really wrestling with this morning. When it comes to gospel ministry, are we free to make it up as we go along? Are we free to do whatever we want to do in the name of, quote, reaching people and just sprinkling in a little bit of Jesus and then anything else that we want to do in a church context or a ministry context is okay and is allowable. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and particularly in this passage is you are in fact, we are in fact not free to make things up as we go along. God actually cares about the way that we engage in gospel ministry. And so our aim this morning is to answer this very simple question. How should we think about gospel ministry? To look at this passage and to pull out six truths. The first truth is this. Gospel ministry is a merciful gift that requires endurance. Gospel ministry is a merciful gift that requires endurance. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Christian, you are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Your salvation is a consequence or the result or the outworking of God's grace. And your calling to gospel ministry is the result of God's mercy in your life. How strange that so many people gather in rooms just like this one, maybe some people in this room, who would say, I want mercy from God. I want to go to heaven when I die. But then when Paul connects the mercy of God to his calling to ministry, those same people say, I don't know about that. Get out of hell free card? Sign me up for two doses of mercy. Serving in the nursery on a Sunday morning? Eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want that much mercy. The problem is we tend to think about gospel ministry as a have-to, not a get-to, as a burden and an obligation, as a weight that God has placed on our shoulders. It's just not how Paul saw it. Paul said, we have this ministry from God, this calling from God, as a result of His mercy to us. How strange that so many people on a Sunday morning would gather in a room like this one and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just not so merciful that you call me to any sort of gospel ministry within the church. It's a result of God's mercy in your life. It's a phony, arbitrary American thing to say, I want the mercy that sends me to heaven, but not the mercy that empowers me for ministry. There's no dividing those things. You need God's mercy because gospel ministry is hard. Working in the nursery on a Sunday morning is hard. It requires a sacrifice. 
Preparing to teach a Sunday school class is hard. It requires time out of your schedule and thought and intentionality. Serving on Wednesday nights in Awana or going on a mission trip to Kenya. Engaging in gospel ministry. Serving as an usher on Sunday morning. It requires a sacrifice on your part. That's why Paul says we don't lose heart. Is because he knows what it's like to be involved in gospel ministry. He knows it's frustrating. He knows it's discouraging. He knows it's easier to, way, to do it the way the super apostles are doing it. Let's at least make a buck off of the whole situation. But he says, look, we're not going to lose heart because we have received this ministry, this opportunity to, to share the gospel as a result of God's mercy in our lives. Here's the second truth. Gospel ministry must not, not be marked by dishonesty, manipulation, or novelty. What we do as a church must not be marked by dishonesty, manipulation, or novelty. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. You know, this last couple of weeks we had Vacation Bible School. We had well over 100 volunteers who served. You guys were amazing. We had close to 500 kids here each day at VBS, three-year-olds and up. It was an incredible week of ministry, of talking about the gospel. I've been part in the past. I've been part of Vacation Bible Schools when I was the low man on the totem pole. And I look back on some of those experiences and I say, you know what? That whole thing was marked by manipulation. I've seen pastors bully young children, manipulate young children into making a decision that they don't understand. Can I be honest with you? It's not hard to do. It's really easy. We could do it easily. Who wants to go to hell? Who wants to go to heaven? Hands need to go up. Make it easier. All eyes closed. Just slip it up. Pray this prayer. Repeat after me. And then we pat ourselves on the back about all these people who got, quote, saved. I'm just telling you, that's manipulation. It's underhanded. It's deceitfulness. It's not integrity and honesty in ministry. What about what Paul says in verse 2 where he says, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word. Do you think that ever happens today in churches and ministries? People tampering with the Word of God? I could give you so many examples of where I see it happening. Let me just give you one. One of the most popular things for a lot of evangelical churches to do these days, it happens everywhere, is during the summer to have a sermon series called At the Movies. This is not creative or original anymore. Everyone has done this. Okay? The idea is really simple. There's a popular movie out. People are interested in it. What if we piggybacked on that movie? What if we showed clips from that movie in church? What if we looked at whatever summer blockbuster has just come out and try to pull some life lessons out of that Marvel movie, Disney movie, Pixar movie, whatever the movie is, and then maybe we can find a way to back into the Bible and connect the whole thing to a Bible verse or two so that we can call it a sermon and say that it's biblical. 
is completely upside down. To start with a blockbuster movie and to back into the Scriptures hoping you can connect the dots somewhere. Listen, I thank God that a few months ago when I sat down with our elders and I said to them, I want your input. I want to know in 2023, what do you think that we should preach on on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights? I didn't lead them. I didn't guide them. I didn't give them any direction. I said, I want you to think about it for a few weeks, and then we're going to talk about it at elders' meeting. They came back to elders' meeting. Not a person said, have you ever thought about at the movies? Not one. You know what they said? Earth-breaking, groundbreaking, earth-shattering, whatever you want to call it. They said, what about Romans? What if we did something on Titus? What about Ecclesiastes or Genesis? What if we talked about the Bible? What an interesting thing for Christians to do, to talk about the Scriptures. Here's the honest truth. I hope that when you come to Emmanuel and you sit in this room and somebody preaches, whether it's me or I'm on vacation wrangling kids at the beach and it's somebody else, you sit in a Sunday school class, I hope you never hear anything new or innovative at all, ever. We don't have anything new to tell you, nothing, zero. What we have is an old, old story about a Savior who came from glory to give his life on Calvary to save wretches like me and like you. That's all we have to talk about. That's it. The movie critics can have the summer blockbuster. Let's talk about what God has done to save sinners through Jesus. And let's do it without manipulation, without deceit, without twisting the Word of God to our own ends to make our own points. That's what Paul's talking about here. Thirdly, gospel ministry centers on the Word of God made clear. This is the back end of verse 2. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There's an interesting ministry philosophy Maybe we don't have to dress the gospel up at all. Maybe we just need to make an open statement of the truth. Maybe the Word of God really is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts between the division of bone and marrow, heart and soul. Centered on the Word of God. When we have a plugged-in class at Emmanuel for new members, First thing we do is eat breakfast because we're Baptists. Second thing we do is introduce ourselves because we don't know each other. So I introduce myself and I ask people to introduce themselves. Third thing I do when we really get going is essentially this. And I look people in the eye and I say, let me make an open statement of the truth. Let me just take all of our cards and put them all on the table right from the get-go. 
We believe that this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and it's inerrant in its content. We believe that it's sufficient for life and godliness and it's authority over our lives. We believe that the one true God eternally exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons in the Godhead. It's a mystery. We don't understand it, but we believe it because the Bible reveals it. We believe that God created human beings in His image to know Him and to love Him. We believe that God gets to define things like what is a human being? When does life begin? What is marriage? What is gender? What is sexuality? God gets to define those things, not us. We also believe that human beings are sinful, fallen. We've rebelled against God, and we put ourselves in the position where we are completely unable to save ourselves. But the good news is that God is kind and merciful and gracious, and He sent His Son, Jesus, to live for us and to die for us. And salvation can be found only in God's grace, only through faith, only in Jesus for those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an open statement of the truth. That's what Paul says his ministry was built on, an open statement of the truth. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul would say to the dozens of preachers, high-profile, big-name preachers over the last year or two who have been caught paying companies to write their sermons so that they're funny, engaging, they use all the right buzzwords, they connect all the right cultural dots, they end up saying the exact same thing because they're paying the same people to write them. Can you imagine what Paul would say to those people? I think he might say, what's wrong with an open statement of the truth? What's wrong with trusting the Word of God, the living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword Word of God, to pierce people to the heart and to change people's lives? Gospel ministry centers on the Word of God made clear. You know, several decades ago, a movement started within Christian circles. Church historians call it the church growth movement. Some of the earliest pioneers in this movement was a scholar named Peter Wagner and a pastor named Bill Hybels. There's lots of other people who were involved in the church growth movement, but these guys were really, really key right there at the ground level. And what they did is they taught Americans to evaluate the success of a ministry with the three B's, buildings, Budgets, bodies. Are your buildings impressive and growing? Are your budgets being met and always increasing? And are you have, do you have all of the bodies in the room? Are you counting all of the heads? Do you have the biggest crowd in town? And that became the metric for success. And do you know what? In almost all Evangelical churches today, that is the metric of success. Buildings, budgets, bodies. That's how you define a good church or a bad church. That's the standard. It's pragmatism. 
It's American pragmatism applied to the church. The bottom line question is, does it work in terms of buildings, budgets, and bodies? My question is, what if God doesn't judge the success of a ministry or a church with the three B's? What if God doesn't use a pragmatic ruler? What if God's standard for success is more along the lines of an open statement of the truth and the Word of God made plain? Just plant gospel seeds. Just water gospel seeds. Trust God to give the growth. Don't fall into this pragmatic trap. Fourthly, gospel ministry is directed toward people who are spiritually blind. Verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you read the chapters that were on our reading plan this week, you went through chapter 3. The end of chapter 3 connects with this passage. Paul talks about the Jewish people, and he says the Jewish people listen to the law of God They see how it's fulfilled in Jesus, but it's as if they have a veil over their face and they don't see what is right in front of them. He's talking about the Jews at the end of chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 4, he expands it. He's not just talking about Jewish people. He's talking about all unbelievers. And he says all the unbelievers have two problems. Number one, their sinfulness has veiled their eyes so that they don't see the truth about Jesus even when it's right in front of them. And number two, the God of this world, Satan himself, is involved in spiritual deception so that people have their eyes blinded. Their sin prevents them from seeing the truth about Jesus And the devil, our enemy, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour, has blinded them to the truth about Jesus. If you want to put this in commercial terms, you say, we as Christians with the gospel are selling a product that no one wants to buy. If you want to put it in culinary terms, you say, we as Christians have put something on the menu that no one wants to eat. Their eyes are blinded. They don't see the truth about Jesus, nor are they interested in Jesus. Peter Wagner and Bill Hybels and the whole church growth movement was predicated on the idea that there are all sorts of people out there who are seeking Jesus if we could just get all the religious stuff out of the way. The Bible says there are no people who seek God, no, not one. Sin has blinded them, and the enemy has blinded them so that they don't see the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to number five. Gospel ministry leaves us dependent on the power of God. We can't convince people. We can't save people. We can't open their eyes, but God can. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our gospel ministry is directed towards people who can't see the truth about Jesus, and we can't open their eyes to that truth. God can. Because He's the same God who in the beginning called light out of darkness. Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1. And that same God 
can open the eyes, He can remove the veil for unbelievers who don't see and don't know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe God would do that in some of your lives this morning. Maybe it would open your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is. There's an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. He said the same thing with a different metaphor. He said, left to ourselves, we have hearts of stone. And we can't do anything about it. But God can remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Jesus told a Pharisee named Nicodemus the exact same thing. He said, Nicodemus, the problem is you're spiritually dead and you need to be born again. And you can't do it, Nicodemus. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do it. The Holy Spirit's like the wind. He blows where He wishes. You don't see it, but you see the results. And Nicodemus, you need to be born again because you're spiritually dead. Here the metaphor is eyesight. You're blinded. Your eyes are veiled. But the same God who called light out of darkness can open your eyes to see the truth about Jesus Christ. You know, when it comes to salvation... We're entirely dependent on God. If you want buildings, budgets, more bodies in the room, there's all sorts of experts who can tell you how to get that stuff. If you want life change and you want salvation, we're completely dependent on God. The greatest American pastor, theologian who ever lived, Jonathan Edwards, said it like this. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's your contribution, sin. The God who in the beginning called light out of darkness, who created everything out of nothing, can remove hearts of stone, can cause those who are spiritually dead to be born again, and who can open the eyes of those who are blind to the truth about Jesus. That brings us to number six. Gospel ministry points people to Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible. Gospel ministry points people to Jesus, clarifier, qualifier, as he has revealed himself in the Scriptures. Our aim as a church is not that people just believe there's a God out there. Some God, a God, any God. Our aim is that men and women, boys and girls, would repent of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed himself to us in the Scriptures. Paul talks about this in verse 4. He talks about the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who are you talking about, Paul? Which glory? Which Christ? The one who is the very image of God. Verse 5, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. It's an Old Testament title for the one true God. Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 6, he's talking about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you get to chapter 11 in this same book, Paul will say the super apostles are preaching a different gospel and they're talking about a different Jesus. Yes, the super apostles have a lot to say about a guy who spells his name J-E-S-U-S. It's not the same guy. You understand there's all sorts of people who have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. Secular universities are filled with 
historians of the ancient Near East who believe that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. They don't believe that he's the Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. You understand your Jehovah's Witness friends who knock on your door and want to hand you a magazine, they have an idea about who Jesus is, but it's not what the Bible has to say about Jesus. You understand your Muslim friends believe in Jesus. They call him Esau in Arabic, but it's not the Jesus that's revealed in the Scriptures. You know, the United States is filled with CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only. They have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is, but they may or may not line up with what the Bible says. I had a fascinating lunch just a couple of weeks ago. I took two Mormon missionaries out to lunch. We talked about Jesus. They started off with the typical speech. You believe in Jesus? We believe in Jesus? We all believe in Jesus? We're all on the same page. Now, normally, that's as far as you get with those guys. You can't get them off that script, but guess what? One of these guys that I was having lunch with was going home the very next day. It was his last day in Odessa, his last day on the mission field, and I'll be honest with you, I think he was tired of riding that bike around in the heat. And about halfway through lunch... He admitted to me, we're not talking about the same Jesus. I said, I know that. You know that. I'm at least open about that, and you're not. People have lots of ideas about Jesus. The question is not, do you believe in Jesus? The question is, do you believe in Jesus who has revealed himself a specific way in the Scriptures? Not any old Jesus will do. The super apostles had lots to say about Jesus. It was the wrong Jesus. The old, old story that we proclaim about a Savior who came from glory starts actually not at the first Christmas in Bethlehem, but in eternity past. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Word of God who in the beginning was with God and was God who in the fullness of time took on flesh by being born of a virgin. He was truly man and truly God. And he lived a life of perfect obedience, complete sinlessness, so that at the end of his life he might die as a spotless sacrifice that he might make propitiation, the Bible would say, that he might satisfy the wrath of the Father towards sinners, dying our death, dying in our place. He died. He was buried. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven where he is now sitting on the throne of the universe. And from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the Jesus we're talking about. That's our aim as a church, is to point boys and girls, men and women, young, old, anyone who walks in this door, anyone who listens to a podcast or watches on Facebook, or anyone who rubs shoulders with us outside of this building, to point people to Jesus. Gospel ministry, pointing people to Jesus Christ as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. I pray that you know Him.
I pray this morning that God, if you don't know him, might open your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life.